This is an ABC podcast. Many weird things happened as a result of the COVID pandemic. One of the strangest was that Australia became one of the only democracies in the world to ban its citizens from leaving the country. I'm Kerry Phillips, and this is Rear Vision. And as our borders open once again, here's the story of passports, visas, citizenship, and identity. National Security Cabinet has decided today that Australia will reopen our borders to all remaining visa holders on the 21st of February of this year. The condition is you must be double vaccinated to come to Australia. Your visa is one thing, but your entry into Australia requires you also to be double vaccinated. And I think events earlier in the year should have sent a very clear message, I think, to every around the world that that is the requirement to enter into Australia. Something like a passport, a document granting permission to travel or asking authorities in another place to allow you to move freely, goes back centuries. But the modern passport, a little travel booklet with your photo in it, is a relatively recent phenomenon. I would argue that the passport as we really think about it today is a product of World War One. There were passports or documents called passports prior to World War One, and in the 19th century they started to be used to sort of police the movement of vagrants and when there were wars or revolutions occurring in Europe to keep soldiers, potential soldiers within a country, like to enforce conscription. But really the passport as an international travel document that sought to create a clear identity between the document and the person that really begins in World War I. I'm Craig Robertson, and I'm the author of The Passport in America, The History of a Document. What's happening in World War I is there's a rethinking of what it means to keep a border secure. And so what governments are starting to realise is to keep their country secure, they need to know exactly who is coming and going from the country. You know, there's a concern about German spies travelling around. And so, yeah, the decision is made that we need to secure our border using some kind of different technology. And that technology is the passport. As well as rethinking border security, the borders themselves were redrawn by World War I. Basically, until the 19th, even into the 20th century, you had you know, a world that was made up of large-scale empires that were multinational. My name is John Torpy. I'm professor of sociology and history at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. They were less troubled about, you know, national or ethnic differences than we are because we're children, so to speak, of the nation state. And as those multinational empires, for example, the Ottoman, the Austro-Hungarian, the Russian during World War I, as those land empires in Europe and Asia Minor crumbled and yielded up these generally smaller so-called nation states, there was a much greater concern about you know, who was going to be able to vote insofar as there was any kind of democratic system. And there was also the question of you know, who was going to serve in the military when that might be necessary. So so-called nation states came to scrutinize much more closely your ties to the country. One sign of this was the invention after World War I of the so-called Manson passport, 
which was kind of an authority given by the League of Nations to a Norwegian explorer, diplomat, humanitarian named Fritjof Nansen, gave him the authority to issue in his own name passports, basically initially to Russian refugees. But then over time, passports were issued to other groups under this authority. Eventually, it sort of petered out as the League of Nations declined. In colonial Australia, border control had largely been aimed at keeping out non-whites, but World War I changed passport arrangements in the newly formed Commonwealth. The First World War is, is a crucial period for the passport because during the First World War, Britain, for security reasons, makes it mandatory for anyone entering or leaving the country to have a passport. And these kinds of rules become generally applied during the First World War. I'm David Lee, and I'm a historian from the University of New South Wales, Canberra. The same happens in Australia because during the First World War, the Commonwealth monopolises passport issuing. They do that under the War Precautions Act, and they also persuade or convince the states to give up their passport issuing role. They also, during the course of the war, make it mandatory, make it compulsory for anyone leaving the country to have a passport. And one of the reasons for that is the Commonwealth authorities want to monitor particularly the male population who are eligible for war service because there were two efforts made during the First World War to actually introduce conscription or compulsion, and they wanted to make sure that eligible males weren't leaving the country and evading possible war service. So the actual interview for passports that were conducted by the Commonwealth in the First World War were a means of actually discouraging people from evading war service and encouraging them to enlist. After Federation, the Commonwealth Government had cemented the colonial practice of limiting the number of non-white arrivals by passing the Immigration Restriction Act in 1901. Anyone getting off a boat in Australia had to pass a special kind of test, a dictation test which could be given in any European language. It was in the discretion of the officers at the time and ultimately it was a subtle way or a non-explicit way of keeping out the non-white travellers. I'm Kim Rubenstein and I'm a professor at the University of Canberra and there's a very famous case, the Egon Kish case of the 1930s, of Egon Kish who was a Czech activist who was wanting to come to Australia, had been invited to speak at some public event and the authorities decided before he entered he was on a ship that they didn't want him there. And so the dictation test at the time was any language that the officer chose. And Mr. Kish spoke about six or seven languages as a European. And so they chose Gaelic as the language to be able to prevent him from entering. And he actually jumped off the ship. I think the story is that he broke his leg. And lawyers came to represent him and successfully challenged the Gaelic test as being unlawful within the within the constitutional structures at the time. So it's quite a fascinating expression of the fact that the way they regulated was just deciding what language they wanted to test someone on as a means of controlling who they wanted in and out. 
of the country. The Immigration Restriction Act was one of the first laws passed by the newly created federal parliament. The act provided the cornerstone of the unofficial White Australia policy and wasn't repealed until 1959. In the early 20th century, the passport began to evolve, with photographs ultimately replacing written descriptions of the person. Yeah, so those 19th century passports, they weren't booklets, right? They were bits of paper, and they could be pretty large bits of paper. The United States passport through World War I was about 12 inches by 18 inches, so 30 centimetres by 45. So that was a cumbersome document to carry around. In fact, many people didn't like carrying around those large documents. One person carrying them suggested that, quote, no pocket of any sex would tolerate them, saying that you could wear them as a breastplate if they were folded or as a garment if they were full-sized, right? So, you know, these are, these are like cumbersome documents to carry around, and they were sort of written as a letter. And we see a remnant of that in the modern passport, where it's a letter from one official to another official requesting your admittance to a country and that you will be protected in the country. So they took on the form of these official, almost diplomatic letters. And included in those letters gradually were categories of physical description. So there would be a list and it would be like forehead, face, nose, eyes, and, you know, you would say that your face was oval and your forehead was normal. I mean, maybe your nose was a Roman nose and you would, these would be used in an attempt to try and describe the person. And so the photograph comes in and in that context is distorted as the photograph image might be, it was seen to be much more accurate than someone attempting to describe themselves through these particular categories with a, you know, a limited range of adjectives. Although passports had often been introduced as a temporary measure in World War I, they gradually became permanent. Not everyone was happy. Passports become required in World War I, but of course not many people are travelling in World War I because there's a war going on. And so when the passport continues to be a required document in the 1920s, that's when most people encounter them. And the people who encounter them are the people who can afford to travel. And those people are not used to having to present a piece of paper. They're used to just being able to say, hey, here I am, look at me, let me into your country. People are offended by the request for a passport. It's like, you don't trust me. The identification documents, they've been used to sort of target and police what are seen as like marginal populations, immigrants, maybe criminals and so forth. And so to be suddenly asked to present a document to prove your identity, it's almost like the government doesn't trust you anymore and the government's putting you in the same class as these people. So yeah, there was a lot of resentment, a lot of pushback and what became known in the 1920s as the passport nuisance. This was the phrase that people used in newspapers and magazine articles to sort of collectively label this resistance. And for many people, it was it was rooted in this idea that, you know, the government was telling people who they were. And of course, in some cases, that's exactly what they were doing, because what the governments were trying to do with a passport was to create a representation of someone's identity that you could fit onto a large piece of paper or by the late 1920s, a booklet. There was passport resistance in Australia, too. 
Well, they were controversial in Australia for a couple of reasons. One was because of the convict taint, going back to the ticket of leave passports. People were wary of that association with convictism. And also, for many British people, passports were the sort of identity documents that foreign dictatorial countries like Russia had, not free British countries. So there was a bit of resistance to the idea of everyone basically having to have a passport. And it really took through the 1920s and 1930s for people to accustom themselves to having to have a passport. And there is a a story about the First World War that relates to a famous Australian, that is Les Darcy, the, the boxer. Now, he came from Maitland, from a large Catholic family, And he wished to travel to America during the course of the First World War to earn more money for his family, basically. But the problem was he was unlikely to be issued with a passport because he was eligible for war service. So the upshot of that was that Darcy didn't get a passport and took a ship and sailed to America, flouting the authorities. That's how he got to America without a passport. This is 1917 at a time when America's joining the war. So there was a bit of controversy even in America, which isn't neutral anymore. It's just joined the the First World War. They did let him in, but there was some suspicion about him in America as there was in Australia. Passports became a permanent requirement for travel for Australians in 1920. And although many people may have considered themselves Australians, for passport purposes, we were to remain British subjects until after the Second World War. Passports were issued to British subjects in Australia or naturalised British subjects. And basically after 1920, when the First Passport Act came in, the First Passport Act basically made the wartime regulations permanent and gave them a statutory basis. So from 1920, passports were compulsory if you wanted to travel. The passport was an attestation from the Commonwealth that you were who you were, and it's asking foreign governments not to hinder you and to, in some cases, help you in that other foreign country. There's no Australian citizenship until 1948. So they were a British subject. And if they go to Britain, they can, if they wish, apply for British passports at at later stages. And that would also, in those days, entitle that person to assistance from British consular officials overseas as well. So it's relying on a British consular and diplomatic network at a time when Australia didn't really have much of one. Our first diplomats weren't appointed until 1940. In 1948, following Canada's lead, Australia passed a Nationality and Citizenship Act. From then on, the Australian passport became linked with Australian citizenship. This is Radio National's Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips. As Australia's borders open once again, we're hearing the story of passports, visas, citizenship and identity. During the Cold War, the passport became a political weapon, with governments on both sides using them to restrict the movement of their citizens. 
There were dramatic defections and escapes from the Soviet Union, while governments in the West refused to issue passports to people with left-wing political views. There was always what's called a ministerial discretion not to issue a passport in some cases or cancel them. That was always inherent in the passport system. And as you say, during the Cold War, many people were refused passports. And in some cases, there were things called endorsements written into a passport saying that you couldn't travel to a certain country, i.e. Eastern European countries. So the government used the passport system to discourage communists or what they call fellow travellers to travel to communist countries. And there were some notable cases during the Cold War of, of people, famous people like Jesse Street, the famous feminist and activist who was actually had her passport cancelled by the authorities because she was travelling to attend conferences that the government wanted to discourage. And there's a famous case involving Wilfred Burchett. Wilfred Burchett was a, a very famous journalist. He was also a member of the Communist Party of Australia. He travelled quite widely. He was one of the first people to visit Hiroshima after the dropping of atomic bombs. But he was the subject of controversy during the Korean War when he got involved in activities in support of North Korea and China. And some people in Australia wanted to try him for treason because of that. But one of the things they did to Birchard was they said, you're not getting a passport anymore from us. Birchard, who had to travel, he's a, a journalist, he was given a document called a laissez-passer, which is a kind of passport. It was issued by the Cambodian government and by the North Vietnamese government, and that allowed Birchard to travel in the 60s and 1970s. So there was no concept of there being an absolute right to a passport, and there was always cases of ministers using discretion not to issue them in certain cases or to cancel them. By the 1970s, passports were proving a different kind of headache for Australian governments. The Australian passport now is a document of identity, attests to who you are, and it's also a document attesting to your citizenship. Nationality and citizenship and identity are crucial to the passport system. And these become very important and controversial in the 70s and the 80s because drug smuggling became a big thing in Australia, particularly in the 70s and 80s. The source of the drugs came from Southeast Asia, from Afghanistan and Pakistan, and also from Lebanon, the Bekaa Valley. And the way that drugs came into Australia was by air travel, by couriers flying on aeroplanes and coming into the country. Now, what that drug trade occasioned was widespread abuse of the passport system. There was a Royal Commission in 1982 which uncovered the case of Terence John Clark, a New Zealander, who actually had five passports under different aliases and had been able to easily obtain these passports through various means, through corruption and fraud in the passport offices or simply by taking someone's identity that they knew or by taking dead people's identity. So there was widespread abuse of the passport system in the 70s and 80s, which was tightened up as a result of this 
Royal Commission. So the passport issuing process became much more rigorous. After the early 1980s, you weren't able to have photocopies of birth certificates. You had to produce originals. The interviewing process became more rigorous. And also the attestation by people of the photograph that accompanies the passport, all those things were tightened up as a result of the 1980s to make sure that the passport was a proper identity document and that you were who you say you were. At the same time, governments increasingly wanted to be able to control the movement of people across Australia's borders. This led to the tightening up of Australia's visa laws with conditions that limited their challenge in the courts. In the 1980s, the Migration Act at the time enabled the minister to have the discretion to restrict certain people, but not everybody, by virtue of requiring a visa for certain individuals. And I don't have the specific language of those sections, but ultimately there was a certain amount of discretion that the decision maker had in making those decisions. With that broad discretion, when a decision was made that someone wanted to challenge, our legal frameworks and enable a review of those government decisions in the courts. And what we found in the mid-1980s, were we found the courts analysing and reviewing those decisions and finding many of those discretionary decisions unlawful because they weren't curtailed. They didn't say the specifics. They'd give a range of perhaps issues to be considered. And the government of the day in, in the late 1980s determined you would be able to restrict what the courts could do if you were more specific about what was required in a visa. And in 1989, the migration regulations were amended in such a comprehensive way that there are now hundreds and hundreds of visa categories and an individual in order to come into Australia has to fulfil the criteria of any one of those visa categories in order to get into Australia. And that is a huge change from a more discretionary approach to a very highly regulated approach because as soon as it's highly regulated, it leaves less leeway for judges to change the decision of the decision maker. It means that the government of the day can change those visa regulations as it sees fit to really determine conclusively who comes in and out of the country. So it's an absolute control mentality that every person who enters the country has been approved in a way that fulfills one of the hundreds of different visa categories that are available. And if you don't fit in one of those categories, then you're not able to get to Australia. As Novak Djokovic stepped on court to train this morning, the superstar remained engulfed in speculation about his future at this year's Australian Open. This evening, the Immigration Minister, Alex Hawke, gave his answer. Today, I exercised my power under Section 133C of the Migration Act to cancel the visa held by Mr Novak Djokovic on health and good order grounds on the basis that it was in the public interest to do so. Here with the Djokovic case, it's sort of interesting in terms of over the years, we've also seen the government giving itself extra power and extra discretion to cancel someone's visa. You've, you know, fulfilled one of those aspects of the many hundreds of different visa categories that might be relevant and you get here, but there are cancellation provisions as well for visas. And what we saw in the Djokovic case was that greater power for cancellation. 
that broader discretion also has to be reviewable. And in the first instance, we saw the court actually saying, no, that's not a lawful decision, and ultimately review before the full court. Ultimately, the court held that the legislation did give the government an immense amount of power that was not unlawful to cancel his visa. Fortress Australia. A travel ban will be placed on all non-residents, non-Australian citizens coming to Australia. The nation's pulling up the drawbridge to all but direct family members and our Kiwi cousins. That will be in place from 9pm tomorrow evening. A migrant nation no longer welcoming foreigners. The reason? Simple. The overwhelming proportion of cases in Australia have been imported. One of the perhaps surprising discoveries of the COVID pandemic was that holding an Australian passport or visa didn't entitle you to come and go as you please. So this is, yes, really interesting, Kerry, in terms of the extent of the power under our constitutional system for controlling individuals and including citizens. So I've been talking to you most of the time today about non-citizens and the visas that they need to get into the country. What you've asked is also interesting from the purpose of citizens. What are the limitations on citizens' rights to travel in and out of the country? So coming into the country, the current framework is that as long as you're a citizen, you don't need a visa. But COVID showed us that there are different ways that the government can regulate. And in in the instance of travel and where you need carriers to follow the Air Navigation Act, they introduced restrictions not through visas, but rather through limitations on the numbers of people that an airline was allowed to take on board in order to follow the air regulations. And so in that sense, we saw the regulation not through visas, but through other forms of restriction of travel. But the second point that you make is that as Australian citizens, we were blocked from leaving the country. And I think that is quite an extraordinary step by a government. When I was a university student myself at law school, I remember writing to a fellow who was in Russia, a Jewish fellow who had applied to leave to come to Australia and had been refused and was sent off to Siberia. And I remember thinking at the time, how privileged in many ways we are in a liberal democratic society or not even privileged about the fundamentals of a right system that you're not trapped in your own country. And COVID did show us that governments have the power to keep you in the country and whether that's appropriate in our liberal democratic system is another long, I guess, discussion. But in essence, it's a very unusual power and it applied to both citizens and non-citizens. And that is, again, remarkable. You would think as a, a right of citizenship that you would have the right to both travel in and out of the country, but those things are definitely not clear in our constitutional structure. I think that what's happened with COVID over the last two, three years now is that it's a reminder to us of the existence of international borders. I think many people of a certain class and a certain privilege have got used to traveling easily across borders. You know, they they carry their passports, but the visas are electronic. You go into Europe now and you're not getting stamped every time you cross a border. So again, if you're of a certain privileged part of the population, there was until 2020, 
It was very easy to travel and really not think too much about the border. And I think what the pandemic has reminded us is that international borders exist and there are laws and there are technologies that allow governments to enforce the movement across borders and make those land borders into what we could think of as paper walls, if not actually, you know, physical walls. Associate Professor Craig Robertson from Northeastern University. The other guests were Professor Kim Rubenstein from the University of Canberra, Professor John Torpy from the City University of New York, and Associate Professor David Lee from the University of New South Wales in Canberra. Anne-Marie de Betancourt is the sound engineer for this Rear Vision. I'm Kerry Phillips. Bye till next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.